Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Here's Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy speaking on Where We Live last month about the opioid crisis in Connecticut. I'm, I'm appealing. I am appealing to the folks in the media to cover this on a daily basis, to report each and every death, because what's happening, we, we have kids going out to celebrate their 16th, 18th, 21st birthdays. Uh, some friend says, hey, why don't you get high with this bag that costs $10, $10 and they wake up dead. The number of people dying from drug overdoses in our state keeps going up. A Connecticut Mirror analysis shows that more than 700 people died of drug overdoses in 2015. That's more than twice as many as in 2012. And the rate is rising faster than the U.S. average. But that's the case in every New England state, except Vermont, whose Governor Peter Shumlin devoted his entire 2014 State of the State address to the problem. Their rates have actually gone down. Today, where we live, a look across New England at what's being done to stop addiction and overdose. Later, Patrick Scahill's new two-part series takes an in-depth look at prescription drug disposal. We'll find out what you're really supposed to do with all your old, unused medications. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. There are a number of reporters covering this across our region, and we'll start with Deborah Becker, who's senior correspondent and host at WBUR based in Boston. Uh, Deb Becker, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Massachusetts, in this mirror drug overdose rate study, shows that uh, it's 19 per 100,000 people. It's a rate that's gone up about uh, 19% from one year uh, over the, the last. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker expressed some impatience recently while urging lawmakers to act on an opioid bill he filed last October. Here's what he told WER uh, reporter Steve Brown. We have four people a day dying here in the Commonwealth. We have legislation pending in a conference committee that everybody says they support, that everybody agrees would be a terrific set of tools to put in the toolbox to help us deal with this epidemic here in Massachusetts. And I would like to see some action on that, yes. Um, And I'd especially like to see it before, uh, as I said, it gets lost in the sort of cacophony of the rest of the work that's going to be going on up here between now and July. So what is Governor Baker and lawmakers uh, in Boston right now trying to do to combat this crisis, Deb? Well, that legislation that the governor referred to is a big issue, and uh, he submitted his own bill uh, last October, and uh, as he as he referenced in that bit of tape there, and his bill has some provisions in it that were considered controversial by some, and among them, he wanted to limit first-time opioid prescriptions to just three days, and he also wanted to require that doctors be allowed to involuntarily hold someone for 72 hours if they're considered a danger because of substance use. So right now, that legislation is in conference uh, committee. Uh, The Senate passed its own bill last fall. The House has also approved a bill, and that bill would change those main provisions of the governor's by limiting first-time prescriptions to seven days rather than the governor's proposal of three, 
and it would also eliminate the governor's proposal to involuntarily hold someone for up to 72 hours. Instead, what House lawmakers decided to do was require that someone get a substance use evaluation within 24 hours. So the House came out with this legislation. The Senate passed legislation last fall, and right now it's in conference committee. But the governor said if, if there wasn't movement by spring, he was going to get very impatient because, as you said, he introduced this in October. So uh, it's been held up. There's a lot of negotiating going on. And at this point, it's not clear when there might actually be some movement. Is this all about politics, do you think, uh, Deb, or is this about truly different ways at looking at how you might combat opioid addiction and overdose in the state? I think it's a little bit of both, quite honestly. I think that there are folks that aren't sh- who obviously aren't sure how to deal with this. I think most of the country isn't really sure, sure how to deal with uh, a problem of this magnitude. And there, according to House officials, there are a lot of minor sticking points in the bill that they want to make sure that they have clarified before they bring legislation out of conference committee. Uh, things about screening students. Uh, that's also part of this legislation. Do you start screening them? Some proposals suggest that they start screening students for potential substance use uh, propensities as early as third grade, Uh, also strengthening the state's prescription drug monitoring program and making sure that physicians are required to record any time they do prescribe an opioid to someone and also, uh, you know, have enforcement action if if a physician does not do that. We've heard about stories coming out of Massachusetts, specifically uh, the town of Gloucester, that had an initiative letting addicts turn in drugs without the fear of being prosecuted. This is the sort of idea that's made its way uh, up to Beacon Hill as well. It it is, and and actually that's in dispute as well. Um, Gloucester, uh, last June, June 1, started this program to allow folks to turn in their drugs at the police station and get treatment uh, and said they would not be prosecuted. It's called the ANGEL program. That has since expanded to dozens and dozens of police departments around the country, really, about 30 in Massachusetts, and they say they've helped about 400 people get into treatment. Uh, They want to expand some legislation currently on Beacon Hill that's relative to this Gloucester program, and that legislation would say that if someone did turn in their drugs, they definitely would not be prosecuted. The district attorneys are concerned about that because they say if there are outstanding warrants or other things, they can't make law enforcement cannot make a promise to someone that they wouldn't charge them, and it's unprecedented. So there's there's still some debate about this particular program, but it is being uh, widely accepted by law enforcement really around the country. If you want to join our conversation as we talk about opioid overdose and addiction here in Connecticut and across New England, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Scott is in Wallingford. Hi, Scott. What's on your mind? Oh, hi. Well, I just wanted to uh, illustrate how this is a problem. Um, I'm fi- in my 50s. I have a daughter who's in her 20s, and she knows this year alone six people who have died from heroin overdoses, not just had problems, but actually died. And on the other side of the coin, I have an elderly uh, relative who, quite honestly, is addicted to painkillers, opiates. So it's a problem. It's a problem, and, and Scott, I really appreciate the call. I mean, the second part of what Scott's talking about there, there, Deb Becker, is something that I know Massachusetts is looking at, too. You know, conversations around prescription drugs and prescription drug abuse later on in our program. Our Patrick Scahill is going to talk about the whole problem of overprescribing, what happens to all these extra pills. How's Massachusetts handling this problem? 
Well, that is, again, part of this legislation to try to limit first-time opioid prescriptions. Uh, it looks as if that will probably go into this legislation as a seven-day limit on first-time prescriptions, but there's some blowback to that. There are folks uh, who formed a coalition who say, look, we need this for legitimate pain reasons, and it puts an unfair burden on folks who are legitimately using these pills to make them go and refill their prescription every seven days. Now, there are all kinds of exceptions to that. Um, it wouldn't be every seven days. It would depend on the illness. The Department of Public Health would have to be involved, but there's been, there has you know, certainly been some criticism, and the Mass Medical Society has said that putting more restrictions on prescription drugs and prescribing practices interferes with the doctor-patient relationship as well. So I think that there are folks who are trying to make an effort on this, but it is, uh, it's a big issue, and uh, folks say that they are routinely prescribed many more pills than they need. So there's also legislation in Massachusetts that would allow a patient to reject taking a full prescription from a doctor of opioids and say if it's, they got 60 pain pills, they could say, look, I only need 20. And, um, you know, again, that's controversial. Is it, should a patient make that decision? What if the patient ends up wanting more? There are all kinds of questions about that, but they are really trying to focus on the prescribing because they say that many times, as you know, using opioid painkillers, uh, becomes addictive, and then it's much less expensive to use heroin. So folks then turn to the heroin to to uh, support their habit and to feed uh, that addiction. So I think the way that they're trying to deal with prescribing is limiting prescriptions, allowing patients to limit prescriptions, and then also strengthening a prescription monitoring program online so physicians are then required to record all prescriptions so someone can't quote-unquote doctor shop to try to get more than they're actually supposed to have. Deb, hang on for just one second, because I want to bring in Susan Sharon, who's Deputy News Director at Maine Public Broadcasting Network, to talk about how Maine is dealing with this issue. Susan, welcome back to our show. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, in Maine, of course, the problem is just about as acute as it is in Massachusetts or Connecticut. How, how big a political priority is the opioid crisis there? Well, similar to what Deb said, you know, the, the conversation has definitely been elevated here in Maine from our congressional delegation right on down. But um, in terms of actual legislation, what we have seen so far this session is that we've seen the legislature pass a bipartisan bill to hire 10 more uh, drug investigators to provide about $2.5 million for um, a new deep detoxification center because we have a, r a real shortage of detox centers in Maine, and then uh, for a, a little bit of money to get some people into treatment, but there has been actually no push, no, no big change from the status quo in terms of um, getting more medication-assisted treatment online. That's methadone and buprenorphine, commonly known as Suboxone treatment, which are considered the best ways to get uh, addicts to prevent them from relapse. There's been nothing about that, and in fact, last year, the legislature spent a, a good deal of time trying to fight back a proposal from um, the LePage administration, from our governor, to end methadone treatment in Maine. So we're, we're, still, we're still pretty much where we were um, this time last year in terms of treatment, and in fact, since 
the push by the LePage administration to end methadone treatment. We lost one methadone clinic in southern Maine, and we lost a very large recovery center in southern Maine. So we actually have less than we did before. You know, and of course, this is uh, Maine's Governor Paul LePage, who made some very controversial remarks about drug dealers coming to Maine and coming from places like Connecticut, which we've talked about on our program before. But it sounds in many ways, uh, Susan, like the same thing is happening in Maine that's happening in Massachusetts, right? There, There's a lot of conflicting information. On one hand, there are people pushing for decriminalization of possession charges, trying to get this out, out in the open so people can get help. On the other hand, there's things like abstinence programs and increased criminalization. I mean, is it sending a, a very confusing message to people who need help? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that uh, I think that everybody wants to do something. They want to feel good about doing something to address this problem. They see the headlines in the newspaper. And in fact, yesterday, our attorney general just put out the latest drug overdose uh, death statistics for 2014. In Maine, they are now at 272. And that's a 31% increase over 2014, mostly due to heroin and fentanyl. But I think that there is confusion, and you see this among, you know, people in the legislature about what uh, what is the best approach? Not only that, because it's extremely complicated and confusing, but what is what is treatment? And there is there is starting to be a pushback from addiction doctors about what that means, because there is treatment, as I mentioned, medication-assisted treatment, buprenorphine and methadone, and then there are recovery supports, you know, counseling and peer-to-peer support and all those kinds of things that are extremely necessary when someone makes the step. But what addiction doctors say is those do not work as effectively unless you have a patient who is receiving medication. Their rate of relapse is down. They're able to continue to go to work. They're able to function better, and they'll stay in treatment, something like I think it's about 60% for a person on methadone stays in treatment after like three to 12 months, um, and a much higher rate of relapse for people who try to go to an abstinence-based program. And so how much of, of the cutbacks of these programs that might help people, I, how much of this is just about the budget in the state of Maine? I mean, so many states have big budget crises. How much of it is about choices that lawmakers are making? I think that's a great question. I, I, I think it's both. I think that there's a misunderstanding, and I think there's about about uh, what is the best approach, and politically that it's very difficult to to expand uh, medicated assistant treatment because of some of the stigma attached with it. You know, you'll often hear people say that it's replacing one drug for another, but what you know, major health agencies will say is that is actually not the case. Um, so there is a misunderstanding about that, but and and then there is the the money issue, but also I think misunderstanding around that because you know when when you read, uh, for example, um, what the National Institute for Drug Abuse has to say about that, every dollar invested in addiction treatment gets a return of of between four and seven dollars on reduced drug-related crime and criminal justice costs. So you you will hear these arguments, but. The, the actual putting them into play is a different story. Well, speaking about uh, money, uh, Deb Becker, how do you think Massachusetts can benefit from President Obama's proposed $1.1 billion in funding to help address the crisis? Well, I think all the states are, are looking at that and thinking about that, but I, I still think it's a little bit early because it's preliminary. Um, I, I think that it would probably help uh, fund more treatment here. There, there has been an increase in spending in the governor's first budget, uh, for opioid-related expenses, as they're called in his budget, which includes everything from education to treatment beds 
and there's a 21% increase in such spending proposed in his next budget. So I think any federal money would be welcomed uh, in that regard. It would help with some of the law enforcement and public safety costs. And also in Massachusetts, we have something which is known as Section 35, where a loved one can go to court and ask that someone be committed, that their loved one be committed to treatment because they believe that they're dangerous. And so we have Section 35 beds, as they're called. Um, Some of them have been put in jails, uh, and so uh, they haven't necessarily been uh, terrific treatment, according to the folks who've been through that. So the, the state is trying to create more Section 35 beds for those folks whose loved ones petition the court to have them committed to treatment. So I believe that that would probably be the areas that the state would look at if more federal money were to be made available to deal with this. But I think what Susan was saying is really interesting because I think this dispute about abstinence only and medication-assisted treatment is critical. And I think it's partly in the addiction industry itself. It's not just a political issue. I think it's also a medical issue. I think that folks don't have very divided opinions about what works for people and what doesn't and what they've seen and, and anecdotally. So until we have a real, I think, agreement on how best to treat people, I think that just complicates this whole situation. The White House drug czar, um, Michael Botticelli, is a former Massachusetts Department of Public Health worker, and he has advocated for medication-assisted treatment. And I've been at conferences where he has spoken about this, and there have been providers at those conferences who strongly disagree with him and say, no, it's got to be abstinence. Medication doesn't work. And and I think until that's eliminated, that just murky, you know, makes the water even murkier, if you will. Uh, Susan, when it comes to federal money coming to Maine, of course, Maine is one of those states that decided not to expand Medicaid under Obamacare. I mean, is this going to help a, a big chunk of federal money coming into Maine? How's it going to funnel down? Well, I think it's unclear about how it will, will funnel down, but that's right. The, the huge problem for Maine has been the fact that Maine has not chosen to expand Medicaid, so this has been hugely limiting in getting people access to treatment. Um, mostly what we hear about about the federal money is um, for – you know, again, on the on the law enforcement side of it, but we have yet to we've yet to understand how it would um, really help here in Maine. Susan Sharon is deputy news director at Maine Public Broadcasting Network. Thank you, Susan, for your time. Thank you. Thanks also to Deborah Becker. She's senior correspondent and host at WBUR. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thank you. We're going to have links to some of this reporting from across New England at WNPR.org. As we continue our conversation about opioids in New England, we're going to be joined by reporters from Vermont and New Hampshire. New Hampshire's problem is getting much worse. Vermont's problem has actually gotten somewhat better after their governor decided to make it a priority back in 2014. We'll take some more of your phone calls as well at 860-275-7266. And this is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're taking a survey of New England and the opioid and addiction problem that's been gripping our region. We just heard from Massachusetts and Maine. We're going to turn now to Vermont and New Hampshire, two states that are telling very different stories. Howard Weiss-Tisman is Southern Vermont correspondent for Vermont Public Radio. Howard, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, Jack Rodolico is health and science reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio. Jack, thanks for joining us. 
No problem. Hello to both of you. I, I'm going to start in Vermont. In, in part, we're starting in Vermont because Vermont has had a trend that's different from the rest of New England. Last month, during a meeting of the National Governors Association uh, Health and Human Services Committee, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin laid out what he considers to be the origin of the opioid crisis. Let's listen. In Congress, when I testified recently, after three U.S. senators, two Republicans and a Democrat, were working hard on this issue, two senators said, well, you know, if we built higher walls on the Mexican border, we'd keep out the drug dealers that are bringing in this cheap heroin. And, you know, my response was, you know, we've had drug dealers on our borders for as long as I've been alive, and we probably always will, unfortunately. But what has changed? Like, why are they doing so well when they really weren't able to sell heroin in these quantities 20 years ago? And let's answer the question. It isn't the drug dealers on the South American border that are our biggest challenge. Believe it or not, yes, they're a big problem. But it is our drug dealers that are FDA-approved selling this stuff in every pharmacy in America. And that's Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin. Howard, I have to say, sounds like he's going pretty strongly after the legal sale of prescription opioids, which all of us in this conversation have said is the root of the problem. Is it actually making some headway in Vermont, his attention to this problem? Well, that's right. Um, the governor has been trying to make that connection ever since he started talking about this crisis back in 2014. During his State of the State address, he brought attention to the opioid and heroin problem in Vermont. And um, it's been an uphill battle all the way, and I think everyone involved with the issue would say that. He, uh, just this year, is trying to enact a bill that would limit the amount of um, prescription opioids that doctors could prescribe, and that ran into some headwinds from the medical community. And, of course, he's going against Big Pharma. Um, so I think he's making some headway, but there's also been some challenges in trying to get a hold of the problem from that aspect. So how, how has the problem changed since his address in 2014? It seems as though the overall rate of deaths from opioids in Vermont has at least leveled off, if not gone down. Um, there are still a lot of deaths from heroin and fentanyl overdose. How's Vermont doing right now after this, uh, this pledge that he made a couple of years ago? Right. It's hard to say. I mean, I would, the way I would look at it is I, I think the state is treading water. I don't think anybody is uh, ready to put up a mission accomplished uh, <laughs> poster. As you said, the uh, report that just came out this week said that the fentanyl uh, deaths have jumped. Prescription opioid and heroin is about level. But considering all the money that's been spent, all of the debate that's happened, I don't think the state has moved significantly um, forward, and I would say it's about the same, and there's a lot of ways to look at it. The number of people who are seeking treatment is way up, and um, there also continue to be some uh, large-scale arrests. So I would say we're... Uh, holding steady. That's what I would say. Well, then let's turn to New Hampshire, where the, the numbers aren't as good. Uh, New Hampshire is not holding steady. According to this uh, survey in the Connecticut Mirror that we've been looking at, the rate of death per 100,000 people in New Hampshire is about 26.2. Uh, that's up from 15.1. It's a change of 73 percent, and that's just been going up time over time, uh, year after year. 
Uh, Jack, what's happening in New Hampshire? Why has this become such a huge problem? Well, New Hampshire, as far as regulation goes, has been late to the game. Uh, You know, we really just in the last year, I would say, maybe two years, but particularly the last year, this has been identified as the state's number one political issue and number one public health issue. Um, And the reason for that is really fentanyl deaths. You know, we were just, you, you were just talking about that in Vermont. It was two years ago that we started to see this dramatic spike in fentanyl deaths. That's when fentanyl was introduced to the black market. And Two years ago, we had over 300 uh, 300 deaths, and last year we had over 400. And so in the last six months or so, the legislature has been working to try to create some common ground where we can find bills to pass to crack down on fentanyl and expand, um, expand treatment. And our congressional delegation is talking about it constantly in D.C., um, state agencies are investigating both pharmaceutical companies for false, potential false marketing practices and the insurance companies to see if they're funding treatment the way that they should under federal law. But the treatment is the other component of it. Not only was the state just, you know, this sort of state was just caught a little unawares by this whole thing, even though it was happening for years and building and building. But the other part of the problem is when you look at, uh, there are these national graphics, right, where you can rank your state on all these different health measures. When you look at overdose deaths and drug addiction, New Hampshire is near the top. But when you look at treatment, we're near the bottom. We have some of the lowest per capita availability of treatment, whether that's you know, abstinence-based or um, you know, based on taking medications. It doesn't matter. We just don't have enough of it. Not, I mean, not even close. So there are some entrepreneurs who are expanding in the state now who are, who are trying to create beds. Um, but, you know, there's, as, as I just heard you talking about with, with Boston and, excuse me, with uh, Massachusetts and Maine, there's a debate over what treatment actually is. So, well, well and, and I think that's, that's the question is what is the hole in treatment in New Hampshire right now? Does it have to do with money? Does it have to do with state budgets? Does it have to do with politics or just very different ways of looking at what proper treatment actually is? Oh, it's everything. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. it's really no one thing. I, my understanding is, you know, uh, 20, 30 years ago, um, you know, insurance just stopped covering treatment quite as much as it had been previously, and so uh, it, it lacked. Uh, so, so we lost the infrastructure, or or didn't really gain infrastructure over the years. Um, there's there's so many problems with that. I mean, perfect example: we have um, uh, a shortage of social workers who, who they're called LADEC uh, certified social workers, and they're drug counselors, and um, their pay rates are so low that uh, they won't do the work. They're leaving the field. At this time when we're desperate for treatment, there are facilities that we have in the state with empty beds because they can't hire staff, not because there's no demand. I mean, there is, there is more demand than they could, uh, than they could fill. But, um, you know, I mean, it is, it's a huge systemic problem across the state. Um, and people are trying to fix it. I mean, there are, as I said, there are, there are biz- private businesses and nonprofits who are all trying to open facilities. Every month or two we're hearing about somebody else who's trying to open a facility. So I think it'll be a different picture in a year, but it's going to, you know, there's a lot happening in, in, in the meantime. Uh, of course, the other overlay, the political overlay in New Hampshire is you don't just have the state legislature or the governor talking about it. you got this whole parade of people who are in uh, campaigning for the top job in America through the New Hampshire primaries. Has that had any sort of impact, the fact that we had uh, presidential candidates, both Republican and Democrat, coming in and being asked to town halls about this very crisis. Has it changed anybody's mind? 
Yes, and we'll wait and see. I mean, (laughs) wait and see in that let's see what happens with this election and who's in office and Senate and the House next year and see what's being done about this opioid crisis on a national level down to the state level here in New Hampshire. But but yes, it's I mean it certainly did. When you've got you know people like Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey, and Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida, both Republicans coming through the state telling personal stories about people that they know that overdosed and died or that, you know, uh had a family member who suffered from addiction. That's a you know, think of the change in tone that marks from 20, 30 years uh, over the last 20, 30 years of American history with the war on drugs and how um, everyone, Republicans and Democrats, but Republicans in particular, always wanted to be seen as very really hard on drugs. You know, and now them talking about it as really what we recognize it is as a mental health issue. Um, so there's certainly been a really dramatic change in tone um, that has trickled down through the state. Um, but again, on the national, on the federal, what kind of federal policy the the federal government's going to roll out, we'll wait and see. Well, and Howard, of course, you know, in New Hampshire, you've got presidential candidates coming through all the time. You've got your own presidential candidate there in Bernie Sanders. Has that helped to start any sort of a conversation there or bring any more attention to this issue? I know he's certainly been asked about it a bit on the campaign trail. Yeah, well, um, treatment has been at the forefront of this discussion from the start. I don't think uh, Bernie Sanders has had too much of an influence on it. But our governor has been talking about it, treatment for a long time. Um, we we have a, we approved Narcan in 2013, and the governor included $200,000 in his budget for next year. The Narcan program was a pilot program, and uh, he wants to extend it uh, from 2015 forward. Also, we just received a $3 million uh, U.S. Department of Health grant to allow us to experiment with naltrexone, which is which is an opiate blocker. So there's been a lot of talk about treatment. We uh, The governor set up what he calls a hub and a spoke system where the Department of Health is kind of the center of it, and we're trying to set up community treatment centers around the state to help people. So, again, I think that resources have been committed to it. Um, discussion has been raised about treatment. And so I think that's moving forward. There's been some um, progress, there's been some success, and uh, we're, we're keeping it up moving and, forward. And you don't have the problem in, in Vermont, Howard, that uh, we heard Jack talk about in New Hampshire, where there are empty beds at facilities because you just don't have the people willing to take the jobs to to care for, for patients. So certainly uh, enough people who need the beds, but uh, not enough workers in, in place in New Hampshire. Any of the same problems in Vermont? Right. No, I think it's the opposite problem is that the um, in a lot of communities, it's overloaded. There, We have a big problem with waiting lists at a lot of treatment centers that some of the more popular, if you will, treatment centers. They say there are waiting lists that are up to a year, a, a year long. So it's it's a problem with resources. It's a problem with um, getting people trained, and also there's a problem throughout New England, throughout rural America, with doctors. And some people say that the medical system is overloaded with people coming in seeking treatment and just not having enough doctors. There's also been some interesting work being done where. They're they trying to allow nurses to be able to prescribe some of these treatment treatments right now. Only doctors can prescribe 
um, some of the treatment, and that was something that Governor Shumlin was working with the uh, six New England governors about, um, allowing nurse practitioners to prescribe Suboxone. And what he was pointing out is that nurse practitioners are allowed to prescribe the opiates, but they're not allowed to prescribe the treatment. So that's, um, and I think that's a, a federal, that's the, uh, re- the Recovery Enhancement for Addiction Treatment, or the TREAT Act, which is bogged down in Congress right now. Jack, something that I've seen is kind of interesting, uh, both in Massachusetts and in New Hampshire, is people are trying to actually expand businesses to work in this field. But there's a lot of questions about what is best. I mean, is there some is there a boom in New Hampshire right now of people trying to get into the business of treating those who are opioid sufferers because there's money to be made? I don't know that we could call it a boom yet, but certainly um Certainly, their businesses are expanding. Um, there, there's one individual in New Hampshire who um, he uh, he's he's something of a poster child. He, you know, the politicians have really uh, latched onto his story. He was, grew up with a sort of middle class background, and he he got addicted to oxycontin. Started using oxycontin when he was like 14 years old. He's a New Hampshire native, and he was hooked on heroin within a couple years, and was sober by the time he was in his early 20s. And now he's 30, and he owns three businesses, all, something like over 100 beds in total um, throughout the state. And one of those just opened in February. There's another facility that's trying to open up in Manchester, our largest city. Um, I'm sure that there's a combination of altruism and just recognizing that this is going to be a business model here that will work for years to come because of what we know about opioid addiction, how pervasive it is. Um, so yeah, I mean there there are certainly businesses expanding in the state. I just wouldn't. I, I don't know that we could call it a boom yet. You know, is is there a, a plan in New Hampshire for this Obama administration money we were talking about earlier? It's a one point one billion dollars doesn't sound like a whole bunch of money to spread around the entire country to solve what we're calling an epidemic, but it's going to have some impact in places like New Hampshire. Is there anything targeted with it right now? Well, there's there's two critical chunks of money that is a combination of federal and state dollars right now um, that are really important to New Hampshire. One is New Hampshire was just approved for this this thing called a transformation waiver through the federal government, and that is up to $150 million over five years. And, and so we just got approved. None of the money has flowed yet, but um, the state government is trying to organize providers, all kinds of health care providers, saying we will, we will help you get these grants from the federal government up to $30 million a year for five years. And what you have to do is combine mental health treatment and addiction services with traditional uh, physical health. And so it's the, the, the goal is to get more money in the state to integrate care between addiction services and all other kinds of treatment. The other chunk of money is Medicaid. Um, and this is really the biggest issue in, right, in New Hampshire right now uh, as far as local politics is Medicaid expansion. So New Hampshire expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act two years ago but it was passed with a sunset provision. It wasn't just passing, okay, now we have Medicaid. What it said was, two years from now, this thing's going to sunset and it's going to go away unless the legislature and the governor re-up it. So that's this year. That's the end of 2016. It will, it will go away. And so we've got 48,000 people closing in on 50,000 people who've gained health insurance through Medicaid in the last two years. Now, for the most part, the legislature wants to, wants to renew it because – um, and, and the opioid epidemic has really sharpened the argument to keep it in many people's minds 
because people, there is a substance abuse treatment benefit under Medicaid. So you've got all of these low-income individuals who are able to, if they, as we said, if they can find a treatment bed and treatment help, have a funding source, potentially. So there are people who have come to the legislature and testified and said, I got on Medicaid last year, I got treatment for addiction for the first time in five years, 10 years, something like that. Um, so that's really the crucial money right now is, is the state legislature yeah. going to continue to renew Medicaid um, and, you know, this $150 million potential grant over five years? You, you know, one thing that's always good when I talk to uh, colleagues from around New England is I, I always think that things are completely crazy at the Connecticut State House, and then I hear what's <laughs> happening in, in the other cities and in other states, and I think, well, maybe we've got it not so bad. Uh, Jack Rodolico is health and science reporter at New Hampshire Public Radio. Thanks so much for your time, Jack. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, John. Thanks also to Howard Weiss-Tisman, who's a Southern Vermont correspondent for Vermont Public Radio. Thank you, Howard. All right. You're welcome, John. When we come back, Patrick Scahill has been covering another part of this opioid crisis, what to do with all those unused pills. We're trying to find out how to dispose of them. That's our conversation next, and you can join us, 860-275-7266, with your questions. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse. Uh, Mark Pazniokas, who covers the Capitol for the Connecticut Mirror, and Christine Stewart, who covers the Capitol for ctnewsjunkie.com, will be here along with Colin McEnroe, who's back with me on The Wheelhouse. We'll talk about some of the week's news. Hopefully you can join us tomorrow in The Wheelhouse on Where We Live. When you look inside your medicine cabinet, what do you see? Bandages, ointments, aspirin? All sounds pretty normal, but if you're like a lot of us, there's also a chance you've got a handful of partially used prescriptions tucked away in there, some of which could be opioid painkillers. The problem is those drugs can be extremely dangerous, even lethal if they fall into the wrong hands. So where exactly should all that old medicine go? It's the next part of our conversation here about opioids in New England, Patrick Scahill is WNPR science and environment reporter, and he's host of the Beaker blog. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. Hi, John. You can join this conversation if you've got some questions, 860-275-7266, especially if you've got opioids in your medicine cabinet right now. We'd like to hear from you because I think a lot of people don't know what to do with it. How do these folks end up with all these leftover drugs in the first place, Patrick? Yeah, well, I was one of those folks who, who didn't know what to do with it. Um, and I guess one answer to that question would be, uh, surgery and, and sort of the acute pain that you have after a surgery. Um, so bearing that in mind, we actually um, posted a message on Facebook asking for folks uh, who are out there who may have had a surgery and were prescribed uh, opiates afterwards. And uh, Julie Spencer, uh, who lives in Bloomfield, got in touch with us, um, and she told me that she was prescribed Vicodin. I didn't take all of it, and the prescription I have at home is from 2007, so you can see I actually don't, uh, don't do much with it. But... Um, I don't know how to dispose of them. So like me, Julie uh, didn't really know what to do with this stuff. Um, and she was collect she had the Vicodin and she sort of had it packed away in her nightstand uh, at her house. Um, but she also, it's, it, you know, it's not always just um, opiates. She has other drugs that were prescribed to her as well. She has a bone condition. Um, and for that, she says she was prescribed um, one type of drug. And, and then she said this. I tried them, didn't like them, didn't like the side effects. So I have a 90-day prescription at home of that, which is no good to me. Then he prescribed something else. He did the same thing, gave me a 90-day prescription of that, which I paid for. Didn't like that one either. Okay, so we're talking about a medical system that's supposed to be cutting down on costs, and here right. we've got at least one person, and I know she's probably typical of many, many thousands or millions across America, 
who are getting prescribed all sorts of stuff that either doesn't work for them or they don't use all of. It sounds pretty costly, Patrick. Yeah, it's costly for insurance. It's costly for jewelry. Uh, it's costly for the consumer. Um, and it's not. We should say too that it's not just you know consumers, average consumers like me and Julie that are out there. It's doctors too. And actually, I talked to one doctor, uh, Scott Kurtzman. Uh, he's a surgeon over at uh, Waterbury Hospital, and he says he has un, uh, he has uh, stockpiled these pills in his house unwittingly as well. I personally had an operation. I got 30 Percocet. I used one, and the other 29 sat under my counter for a long time. I never thought about it. And Patrick, I'll say uh, our conversation uh, today and, and your reporting really started with a letter that I got from a doctor after a previous conversation that I'd had about this issue about opioid uh, painkillers. There's a, there's a feeling out there that doctors are overprescribing. Many doctors got back to me and said, well, wait, people really need these pain medications. We're just doing what we can. So one of the questions you and I started to ask is, well, why 30 in a bottle? Why not 12 in a bottle? Why not 20? Are there any guidelines at all? And as you start looking into it, it's, it's kind of hard to know, right? Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, one of the most interesting things that came out of the conversations that I had with doctors was this idea of, there's an art that's in medicine, right? It's it's not always clear or evident to you how much you should prescribe um, or how real a patient's pain is after a surgery. For some folks, their pain tolerance is higher. So it's tough for a surgeon. I mean, they have to balance that when they're writing a prescription. And um, it, it's the, the answer is not always entirely clear. Well, and of course, the thing that we heard about earlier in the program, this is happening in all the New England states, it's certainly a problem here in Connecticut as well, is that when there's too many of these pills that are out there, especially uh, things like oxycodone or, or, or Vicodin, yep. they end up on the street. On the street, they have a very high price point. People get addicted to them. Heroin is a much cheaper high, and that's what we're finding all across the region, especially in a city like Hartford. We just heard from the Hartford Police Department that if you're buying at wholesale, I mean, heroin's incredibly, incredibly cheap. Meanwhile, these other pills in the black market are very, very expensive. So from a market standpoint, it makes an awful lot of sense. We've got to try to figure out how to get all of these pills off the street, Patrick. And I think part of it just starts with the doctors, right, and also the patients. Yeah, and I think um, and maybe this is a time to bring, uh, bring in a cut that we have from Daniel Tobin. Um, so doctors are prescribing medications. Um, sometimes they're prescribing more than you need, um, uh, and those are left in your medicine cabinet. And I think uh, let's, just, let's just play this cut from Daniel Tobin. He's a, he's a, med a medical doctor over at Yale University. Where do people get the supply of medications that are, you know, used without a prescription? And it turns out that in the vast majority of cases, it's not a drug dealer, and it, it's not really even the doctor or multiple doctors. It's the medicine cabinet of family and friends. Okay, so we know where the problem lies, but now you got these medicine cabinets full of stuff. What are you supposed to do with this medication? Because for years, people have said, well, I'll just flush it down the toilet. Right. Don't and do that. Don't do that. Okay. Well, first of all, tell us tell us why. Yeah. So the number one thing, and this is basically, I would say, the number one point of confusion on this, um, don't flush the medication down the toilet uh, and the, or down the drain. And this is something that the Department of Consumer Protection here in the state says. It's something that the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection here in the state says. But uh, the FDA federally says flush it. <laughs> so a lot of folks, they Google this, they go, they go online, and the first thing that they see is that the FDA is saying it's okay to flush pills like Vicodin down the drain. And, and the DEP doesn't want you to do it because it ends up back into the water stream that can exactly. cause problems with our actual uh, the water that we drink. Yeah, and it's costly to filter all that stuff out later downstream. So they say don't do that. Um, and and we'll, I guess we'll go through a few options here for what you can do here in the state. So, again, number one thing, don't flush it down the toilet. 
Um, the state says there's basically three options, uh, and I'll just lay them out big picture right now. There's take-back days, both federally and locally sponsored take-back days. Um, there's a bunch of drop boxes that we can talk about that have popped up at police stations all around um, uh, Connecticut. Then uh, the third option, which is probably the least uh, best, but is still one that's very convenient, is just throw it in your garbage. Okay, so on the take-back days, it'd be nice if there were take-back days all across the state, but there's really not that many of these. Yeah, so uh, there's a couple that the DEA has been sponsoring uh, federally um, uh, twice a year uh, for a few years now. Uh, the one this year is actually on Wednesday, April 30th, um, but it's only for four hours, um, which is a really short amount of time. Um, and there's some other local ones that are done here in the state. I spoke with um, with John Dobbins. He's a, a pharmacist over at UConn Health. Um, and a few years back, he actually started one up in Southington and Bristol. And he was telling me that um, within four hours, he had collected somewhere upwards of, of 30,000 pills. Yeah, but you have barrels uh, and barrels, barrels full and of barrels these pills. Of stuff. But, but also in your story, one of the things we hear from people is, well, look, if you have to wait an entire year with the stuff in your medicine cabinet to throw it in a bin once a year, that probably doesn't sound like the most convenient thing. So this idea of police drop boxes have started, and these are springing up in different places around the state. Yeah, so this was an idea um, that was first brought to, brought to Connecticut um, by uh, an EMT down in Fairfield County, actually, uh, by the name of Jeff Holland. And we should say Jeff worked with um, a bunch of other people to sort of finally get this uh, idea to fruition. But uh, Jeff went up to uh, Gloucester, uh, the police department up in Massachusetts. and it's Gloucester. 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 Okay, well, anyway, please yeah, continue. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, he went up there and saw that they were doing one of these drop boxes, and they had actually, they were using an old uh, post office uh, mailbox uh, that they were using uh, to uh, collect uh, unused medications. And it was a successful program. A lot of folks were using it. Um, so Jeff wanted to bring this idea down here. Uh, he did. Uh, he piloted this idea in four police stations down in Fairfield County. Uh, and it went really, really well. A lot of folks used it. Um, and these are basically secure one-way bins that are placed in the lobby of a police, of a police department. Um, they're available 24-7. You can come in, no questions asked, and take your unwanted medication, your old medication. Um, could be over-the-counter drugs, could be uh, prescription meds, could be opioids, and put them in the bin. And they're secure, and they're there, and then the police handle it. And in my reading around New England, these are cropping up around the other states as well. The, the problem is, is when police say no questions asked, I think a lot of people who probably have a lot of pills might worry about the no questions asked. I know you talked to some law enforcement about this. Yeah, so um, we spoke with Brian Foley, uh, am- among other folks, uh, and Brian Foley is a deputy chief here in Hartford. Uh, he said... Uh, it, there's no, I mean, literally, it's no questions asked. You come in, you drop it in the box. People aren't looking at it. They're not going to ask your name. They're not going to ask questions. Right, let's go to Louise and Guilford. Hi, Louise. Hi. What, what's on your mind? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I just, I'm sitting here holding my um, container of oxycodone that were prescribed to me uh, be two years ago for uh, I had a breast reduction. And I took two of the pills, mainly because not at the time I felt any discomfort, but they said, you know, after the surgery, you may. And I took two, and I've been hanging on to them ever since and listening to all the comments. And quite frankly, I agree. I don't understand why the doctors are more conscientious with prescribing a number that would be more reflect the necessity of these afterwards. Mm. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the phone call, and I think it, it helps get us to something. I mean, there's a question of, you know, why don't the pharmacies just take it back? Why, why doesn't CVS or some of the big pharmacy chains, Patrick, say, you know, look, we sold all these, they don't need them all, we'll take them back. Yeah, so um, that was one of my first thoughts, too, and that kind of gets to this broader idea that we talk about a lot in environmental reporting, which is extended producer responsibility. So think about, um, you know, when you buy paint or when you buy a mattress at the point of purchase, you pay a little bit extra uh, to cover the cost of disposal downstream. 
that's really tough for a lot of reasons with uh, with medications. Uh, and I guess the, the simplest explanation for this right now is that the law doesn't specifically say pharmacists can take these drugs back from unauthorized sources like you and me. So um, if a prescription is written to someone and you have it and you have it at your house, you can't just take it back to the pharmacy because the pharmacy can't be taking back in, uh, um, you know, very dangerous, uncontro- uncontrolled drugs, well, it, if that it, makes any yeah, sense. Well, and yeah. dr- drugs that could be dangerous if they get into the wrong hands, certainly drugs that you don't want end, ending up back in, in pill bottles because right. you, who knows where they've been. So that's a big problem there. And, and, and I should say, too, a lot of pharmacists told me that there's also just a basic security issue for them. They don't want uh, a, a pile of, of potentially opiate attractive pills in, laying, laying in a pot next to their uh, a counter at the pharmacy that could be open 24 hours a well, day. Well, of course, and I don't have time for this phone call, but John and Hamden brings up something. Well, what if the police department just worked with pharmacies and said, the police will put a drop box outside. It's a secure thing, but they don't have to go to the PD. Instead, they can just go down to their local pharmacy and put it in a police drop box. Yeah, that's something that Consumer Protection has actually thought about, and they are considering doing. Again, it's just laws would need to be changed to allow that. So right now, your best bet is just going online, going to the Consumer Protection website and uh, looking for the local police department near you that has one of these drop boxes. Okay, so we've got one minute left, and the last option here is just to throw it out, which is not the best option. You actually talked to someone who said, here's what you're supposed to do if you're just going to throw this stuff in the garbage. It sounds a little bit more complicated, frankly, than most people are going to try. <laughs> yeah, so if you want to throw it out, um, I guess the first thing to say is that uh, according to the Department of Energy uh, and Environmental Protection, we're not landfilling garbage in the state anymore, so all the garbage... Uh, that you're throwing away curbside is eventually going to end up in an incinerator. So the Department of Consumer Protection says, bearing that in mind, here's what you can do. You can basically take your pills, dissolve them in some hot water, uh, put them in, uh, say, like a a used yogurt container, um, throw in something that would make it a little bit unpalatable. So you can use uh, used kitty litter uh, or old coffee grounds. Put it in there, tape it up with some duct tape, make sure you take all your labels off the prescription vials, and then toss it in the trash. So a few <laughs> steps there, but <laughs> it is convenient. I mean, it is it is at your house. You don't have to go anywhere. So And, and it eventually gets incinerated and turned into energy for all of us. Exactly. Patrick Scahill, uh, WNPR's science and environment reporter, thank you so much for the reporting on this. I really appreciate sure. it. If you want to find out more about Patrick's stories, go to WNPR.org. He's also got his blog, TheBeaker.org, where you can find out all about science. If you want to continue this conversation, go to WNPR.org slash where we live. Our program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon is our digital editor. Katie Tolarski is the executive producer. Thanks to interns Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. Tomorrow, Colin McEnroe is back in the wheelhouse with me. Hope you can join us where we live. <laughs>